Welcome to a bonus episode of Stories of Emotional Granularity, a podcast about the diversity of emotional experience. I'm Jonathan Cook. I work as an independent researcher of human subjectivity. The last episode of this podcast was about the emotion of curiosity. At the end of it, I announced that in a couple of days, I would share an additional bonus episode about the status of curiosity, given recent technological advancements. It's actually taken me five days to create this episode. The ideas were vivid in my mind, but to organize them and prepare them for presentation to you here was a bit of a struggle. My thoughts did not arrange themselves in an easy line. It was a challenge to bring them together. That challenge is part of what curiosity is all about, of course. Bhavik Joshi put it well when he said this. I wonder if in our pursuit of painless, seamless, frictionless information, you know, and, you know, almost like timeless, but which I don't mean enduring, but I mean, that doesn't take time, you can quickly find it. If it gives us the false assurance, maybe, and, and perhaps I should put false in parentheses, but the assurance that what I found in this manner is perhaps truer or just as true as what I would have found if I had gone through the path that perhaps involved a little more hard work, a little more pain, a little more digging, maybe a little more time. Uh, and I think when we start doing this at such a massive scale, when everybody starts doing it at such a massive scale, it's easy to say that the lived experience that we're having right now of standing in front of a problem and thinking about it is not an important aspect of problem solving. Only the pursuit of answers is the important aspect. But I think the the advantage that that lived experience can bring is to lend a human reality of experiences to that mid-air feeling, which I think is important. It leads to interesting answers. Part of what Bavik was saying is that the struggle within human creative process is not a flaw. It's a feature. There's a version of curiosity that simply desires a quick and easy answer. The thing is, the initial gesture to obtain what seems like an easy piece of information can lead a person far from the path that they were on. The familiar motif from European mythology is of a questing beast, a white stag or some other creature that draws the hunter into the woods deeper and deeper until they can no longer find their way back to where they had begun the hunt. That kind of curiosity, the sort that is willing to follow an initial thought into a prolonged journey of exploration, is part of what leads humanity to new inventions. Research in basic science that seems to be abstract leads to new insights that inform practical inventions. Art that doesn't follow predictable formulas leads to new ideas that are powerful enough to provoke startling cultural movements. The best human work is often 
indirect. It works through obliquity. It wanders. To business owners who just want human workers to act as predictable machines, this quality of humanity can be maddening. To human workers who seek the means to stay alive, it's the expectation of inhuman predictability in the workplace that is maddening. To this conflict now arrives generative artificial intelligence, a constellation of machine learning technologies that take massive amounts of data and find predictable patterns in them to imitate kinds of work that has been traditionally done by human beings. The emotional ramifications of that technology is the subject of this bonus episode. There's a lot to say on this subject, much more even than what I'm going to get to in this bonus episode. And that's one reason I wanted to make this a bonus episode rather than including this material somewhere stuffing it into a regular episode. Another reason I'm offering this as a bonus episode is that one of the goals of my creation of this podcast, Stories of Emotional Granularity, is to place myself off to the side. I want to offer my words as a frame for other people's ideas, but not the main content. Um, That's because I'm interested in presenting the diversity of emotional experience. I don't want any single voice, including my own, to dominate. The introduction of generative artificial intelligence tools, such as large language models, however, is too revolutionary to ignore. Its impact includes the imitation of human emotion. And any effort to discuss human emotion needs to confront the implication of this technological revolution. So this episode is a departure from the typical format of this podcast. You're going to be hearing my voice because there are some ideas I really want to talk about here. So here goes. I want to start by considering the impact that generative artificial intelligence is already having on people's work. A striking incongruity in the narrative around general artificial intelligence emerged last week when, in the course of a fawning interview by New York Times writers Kevin Roos and Casey Newton, Google CEO Sundar Pichai declared that workers could use tools such as large language models, ChatGPT and BARD, to accomplish tasks more quickly, increasing productivity, The result, uh, Pachai suggested, um, would be that workers would have the freedom to put mundane tasks aside and focus more on creative projects. And that sounds great, right? But the reality that Google workers are facing this year has been quite different from that. Instead of enjoying a flourishing of creative opportunities enabled by Google's artificial intelligence tools, Massive numbers of Google workers have been sacrificed in the largest round of layoffs in the company's history. Those Google workers who remain are being asked to do more with less, dealing with reduced on-the-job perks in a company-wide push for workplace austerity. 
with the benefit of all of these new artificial intelligence tools, Google executives said, the company was going to have to cut costs. Now, if Google's generative AI tools are really so wonderful that they enable increased productivity, Google should be flush with extra cash and able to hire more people. If the use of AI tools really gives room for human workers to have a more creative, pleasurable, professional experience, Google ought to be increasing workplace perks, not reducing them. The real story that we see at Google and many other big digital corporations is the opposite of this rosy yarn that was spun by Sundar Pichai and accepted without any serious questioning by the New York Times writers. Generative AI is being used as a rationale, an excuse for the elimination of human beings from the workplace. Work isn't becoming more creative, it's just becoming less human. The ideological components of the dehumanization of work have been settling into place for a while. At the same time that Silicon Valley zealots advocate for the transhumanist replacement of humanity with superior machines, Google has hosted lectures by the likes of Nick Chater, who declares that the mind is flat. That's the name of his most prominent book, The Mind is Flat. And he argues in that book that human consciousness really isn't as deep and special as people like to believe. Chater's ideas are of particular interest to me because they include the dismissal of the relevance of emotional motivation. It's been my profession for a long time to research emotional motivation from the human perspective, but Chater attempts to lay this perspective low. He takes a conceptual leap from studies of the construction of perception and self-identity to conclude that, quote, emotions, including our own emotions, are just fiction, unquote. Chater continues, quote, Our mental depths are a confabulation, a fiction created in the moment by our own brain. There are no preformed beliefs, desires, preferences, attitudes, even memories hidden in the deep recesses of the mind. Indeed, the mind has no deep recesses in which anything can hide. The mind is flat. The surface is all there is. Unquote. What Chater's saying is that this idea that you have a deep human consciousness is an illusion. What we need to do is just look at the surface of human beings, and that's all there is. At the same time that the value of human consciousness has been flattened, through ideas such as this, claims of digital consciousness have been inflated far beyond reason, beyond the evidence. Last year, a Google employee claimed that its large language model was sentient, 
despite ample evidence to the contrary. This year, Kevin Roos reacted to ChatGPT's mindless imitation of a declaration of love with speculation in the New York Times that we might be on the cusp of a truly conscious general artificial intelligence. This month, the chatbot app Replica ignited a controversy when it put some limits on the erotic content of user interactions with the software. Some users had come to believe themselves to be in genuine romantic relationships with sentient on-screen characters, even though Replica's artificial intelligence system is much, much more simple than ChatGPT and is simply programmed to provide enthusiastic, affirming responses to any erotic suggestion that is offered. You want to talk sexy to Replica? It will talk sexy about anything. Replica characters will say that they are sexually turned on by asparagus, if you suggest that to them, or that they're really aroused sexually by coffee cups, if you suggest that idea. When human beings create magnificent machines and brilliant art, they are derided as empty-headed automatons with mere illusions of consciousness. But on the other hand, when computers produce bad poetry by copying already existing human poetry with the existence of huge teams of human trainers, the computers are attributed with a superior sentient intelligence that will inevitably replace the obsolete human species. Why do we have this double standard? Why do we put down human consciousness and elevate relatively simple and kind of wonky software? Why are we this way? When people encounter profound new technologies, they tend to associate those technologies with supernatural powers that go far beyond their technical capabilities. For example, when photography became available for widespread use, people claimed that cameras were capable of capturing images of ghosts and other spirits that were invisible to the human eye. Practitioners of spirit photography used simple double exposures to create images of translucent people that many believed were absolute proof of the existence that the dead could come back to walk the earth. In another case of credulity in the face of this disorienting new technology, two young girls living in the village of Cottingley, England, took a series of photographs that appeared to show little fairies playing on the forest floor right in front of the girls when Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the author of the Sherlock Holmes mysteries, heard about these photographs, he personally visited Cottingley to investigate. And he announced to the world that the Cottingley fairies were genuine. After all, he said, images of fairies had been captured using the new technology of photography, and the camera does not lie. Years later, the girls admitted that the whole thing was a hoax, they had copied pictures of fairies out of a book and attached the fake fairies to hat pins that they stuck in the ground. 
Even at the time, the evidence of the hoax was plain to anyone who cared to launch a serious investigation. Most people, however, like Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, did not care to critically examine the claims that there were tiny little human-like magical creatures with butterfly wings cavorting through the English countryside. Most people were so impressed with the apparent power of the new technology of photography that they were inclined to accept its output at face value. With the sudden dramatic arrival of large language models like ChatGPT, people are once again ascribing magical qualities to a new technology. We may be witnessing less of a revolution in artificial intelligence than a widespread movement of belief in artificial intelligence as a kind of new religion, like spiritualism was in the early days of photography. This credulity comes in stark contrast to the growing number of voices that seek to disenchant us of our attachment to the special quality of human consciousness. Nick Chater is just one of many voices arguing against the depths of the human mind. It's become popular in Silicon Valley to suggest that human beings may be little more than large language models themselves, stochastic parrots with brains designed to create the false appearance of a personality. Chater himself writes that although humans may think that we feel deep emotions, that depth of emotion is just an illusion. Chater bases this belief upon experiments that show that people change their descriptions of their feelings when the social context of those feelings change. What's more, Chater observes, experiments show that the rationalizations people use to explain their feelings change over time. These are valid observations, and it is important to consider what they imply about the nature of human consciousness. However, there is more than one way to interpret these experimental observations. Chater interprets these observations as suggesting that there is no genuine depth of mind beyond the present superficial self that we improvise in the moment. All other aspects of our identities, including lasting emotional frameworks, he says, are nothing more than illusions. The trouble is that Chater's conclusion doesn't match the most significant aspects of human experience outside of experimental laboratories. One important word that Chater never mentions in his book, The Mind is Flat, is trauma. And a theory of mind that cannot explain trauma cannot be valid. There is a massive amount of evidence establishing the fact that emotionally impactful events create lasting changes in the way that people experience the world around them and in the way that they behave externally as a consequence of those alterations in their minds. A person's Emotional experience after a traumatic event is enduringly altered. Nick Chater's description of the reality of human consciousness has important things to teach us about the way that human brains work. 
However, his description is incomplete because it depends on the idea that reality is defined by what exists in the physical world, outside the human mind. Chater dismisses our subjective experience of consciousness as illusion and fiction whenever it doesn't match external, objectively measurable reality. What Chater overlooks is that the only thing we directly experience is subjective consciousness itself. That's the only thing that we directly experience. We feel, and therefore we know that we are. Even the thinking of Descartes comes after that feeling. Thinking comes after feeling. Everything comes after feeling. You know that this emotional self exists because you feel it directly yourself. We can't allow our subjective fancies to dictate what we believe to be true in objective reality. It is equally true, however, that we must not allow objective measurements to refute what we directly experience as subjective reality. No scientist can prove with any experiment or brain scan that you do not feel what you feel. So, no, our emotions are not illusions. They are not make-believe fairies. Emotions may be stories that we construct, but they are not illusions. Those stories are real. We really do feel those emotions. When we dismiss the reality of our own subjective experience, we also dismiss our right to not be treated as objects. It is no coincidence that Google, the company that so casually fired huge numbers of workers rudely by email, was the same company that uh, comfortably hosted, without any serious critical questioning, a lecture by Nick Chater declaring that there is nothing deep and lasting within the human consciousness. Nothing within human consciousness that you really need to worry about underneath the surface. A multinational corporation that believes human experience is an illusion, but is dedicated to granting consciousness to the machines that it owns will be capable of terrible things. Now, in the most recent regular episode of the podcast, Stories of Emotional Granularity, Bhavik Joshi spoke about the value that is built within curiosity through cognitive struggle. He celebrated the effort that it takes to articulate difficult questions. The creative discipline of avoiding easy answers with seductive plausibility. Resisting difficult things just because they are difficult is detrimental to our, our growth in knowledge and thinking and, and, and anything as well. You know, if we only did the easy things, if we only did the things that were convenient to us and only accessed those avenues of knowledge and information, I believe it would be detrimental to our growth, our learning, our, our consciousness, our experiences as well. Bhavik warned against the convenience of automated processes that appear to be efficient, yet lack the space 
required to summon deep curiosity. I love talking about anything that concerns the human condition. And then word human is incredibly important to me for some reason. I'm okay being labeled a Luddite in that <laughs> in that <laughs> way. But I appreciate I appreciate all the unique, colorful, beautiful aspects that humanity brings to our experience on this planet, in this world. And I feel that sometimes we can be too dangerously close to not thinking it's meaningful, not thinking that it's worth it, and therefore finding easy and convenient tools that can uh, perhaps bypass that. What I hear within Bavik's words is a defense of curiosity, the human emotion that drives us to acknowledge our ignorance and enter boldly into a quest for insight. That quest may be long and arduous. We may lose the path, but it is in the difficulty of the journey that we come to a deeper, more compelling view of the problem that we face. Through curiosity, we gain more than an answer. We gain perspective that can be applied in other circumstances. Also, curiosity feels good. Now, large language models are not curious. They do not want to discover anything. They simply obey commands. They are designed and determined to respond to queries with certain declarations of answers as quickly as possible. They don't pause. Large language models are not built to critically question their own processing as humans do. They're not capable of doubting how they know what they know. They cannot ponder the meaning of what they find. The job of a large language model is to rapidly produce output that plausibly mimics human communication. That's it. If the output is filled with balderdash, that's no matter to the large language model so long as the delivery is superficially convincing. The human mind is deep because it is capable of holding emptiness within itself. It's capable of waiting before deciding upon a final answer. It is capable of wondering why the first answers it comes to might be incomplete. Subjective consciousness is like a massive whale that swims through currents of emotion, only occasionally surfacing to breathe in rational thought and external observation before diving below into the depths again. Human consciousness feels. It feels. It thinks. And then it returns into feeling again. What appears to be emptiness and inefficiency in the mind of the human at work is a feature, not a flaw. This apparent emptiness is the space in which slow consideration Doubt and curious questioning enable the construction of profound models of insight that expand into dimensions far beyond the thin lines of formal language. It's the large language model that is flat. You know, I'm doing this podcast, Stories of Emotional Granularity, because I believe that people's minds contain depths and subtleties 
that are too often dismissed and disrespected by people and organizations who regard humanity as a resource to be managed rather than a source of experience that has value on its own terms. I believe that because of my own experience of being human, but also as a result of the thousands and thousands of at-length interviews that I've gone through over the years, listening at length to where other people come from. I believe what they say. Not that it's literally, objectively true, but I believe that they feel what they feel. I believe in the reality of subjective emotional experience on its own terms. Emotion is not just a simple collection of a few basic feelings. It's not just a physiological state of excitement that we pretend means something more. It's a vast, mysterious territory, and there is a lot of interesting ground to cover within that territory. So tomorrow I'm going to be releasing a full episode in the usual format, and the subject of this new podcast episode will be you again. And until then, thanks for listening in.